Section 10 of the Roman Triumvirates by Charles Merivale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5. Caesar's Conquest of Gaul, Death of Crassus, and Dissolution of the First Triumvirate, Part 1. The narrative of the conquest of Gaul by the most consummate captain that ever led the Roman legions, a narrative related by himself, in a style distinguished for its truthfulness and simplicity, must have a special interest of its own in the history of the conquering republic. Both the military tactics and the administrative policy of Rome was presented to our view in the commentaries of Caesar on the Gallic War. We learn from this lucid record how the greatest empire of the ancient or the modern world was acquired, and how also it was organized and maintained. The commentaries are in fact an epitome of the history of Roman conquest. But as regards the object of the present work, it will suffice to refer to them briefly as a chapter in the annals of the first triumvirate, for the light which they throw upon the aims of Caesar and the means by which he accomplished them. The conquest and the provincial settlement of the further Gaul occupied the proconsul without interruption from the year 696 of the city, when he entered on the command, to the year 705, when he relinquished it for the conquest of the empire. A vast amount of Roman blood and treasure was spent in his successive campaigns, but the losses of the enemy were no doubt far more exhausting. From the date of their subjugation by Caesar, the Gauls never rose again as a nation in revolt, but their pacification was due to the wise and liberal policy of their conqueror, even more than to the terror of his arms. The Gauls had been in earlier times among the most formidable enemies of Rome. The citizens could never forget that the barbarians of the north had once entered and burned their city. For a space of two centuries, indeed, these invaders had retreated step by step. Nevertheless, from time to time they had again threatened the Republic with the gravest disasters. Step by step Rome had driven them across the Apennines to the valley of the Po, and had there subdued and pacified those of their tribes that dwelt within the limits of the Alps. She had advanced by sea to the coast of Transalpine Gaul, had settled her colonies at Massilia and Aquae Sextiae, and had penetrated from thence still further into the interior. She had eventually organized the Provincia, her first military dependency beyond the Alps, and to this province, which lay between the Alps and the Rhone, she had added a second, which reached from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic, and was named for its capital, the Narbonensis. Rome had little now to fear from the Gauls, brave and warlike as they were, for they had lost their earlier power of combination for attack or defense, and were for the most part distracted by the mutual animosity of their various tribes and by the class jealousies of rival parties in each the romans could easily afford to despise the murmurs of the allobroges who had pretended for a moment to take a part in the revolt of catalina but a movement of another kind was now in progress among these northern peoples the halvitii 
had determined to make a general immigration from their own narrow and barren territory and direct their course in a body through the centre of gaul to the broad and fertile shores of the atlantic the tribes of the interior were alarmed great disturbances might be expected to ensue the frontiers of the roman province might not be secure it was deemed necessary to assume a high tone and forbid the movement caesar hastened across the alps amused the helvetii for a few days with negotiations while he fortified the banks of the rhone which they proposed to cross below geneva and forced them to take a difficult route to the northward and plunge into the country of the Aedui in the centre of Gaul. Upon this track he quickly followed them, routed them first on the banks of the Saone, and thence pursued them to the neighbourhood of Bibracte, Autant, where he finally crushed them. From thence he turned his arms against the Suevi, a German tribe who under their chief Ariovistus had crossed the Rhine on a predatory incursion and approached Vincentio, Besançon. Having relieved the more quiet and settled communities of Gaul from both these invaders, he set himself to form an alliance with some, and so dissensions among others, so as to prepare the way in accordance with the usual policy of the Roman conquerors for the eventual subjugation of all. The Idui and the Averni, in the centre of Gaul, the Remi in the northeast were disposed, each with selfish views of their own, to aid in the ruin of their common country, while they hailed Caesar as their protector against the restless Germans on their eastern frontier. In the second year of his command, U.C. 697-55 B.C., the proconsul broke the confederacy of the Belgic tribes on the Meuse and the Moselle. In his next campaign, 698, he worsted the naval power of the Veneti and Amorica, and reduced for the most part the coast of the Channel, while his lieutenants were equally successful in overcoming the tribes of Aquitania. In the year 699, Gaul was very generally pacified, but the legions required to be kept in exercise. Their officers were greedy of more plunder. Caesar had a great military engine to form and to maintain, and he did not scruple as to the means to be employed. In his fourth campaign, B.C. 55, he advanced beyond the limits of his province, threw a bridge across the broad and rapid Rhine, the greatest effort of the kind yet accomplished by the Roman forces, and penetrated for an instant into the German forests. This incursion indeed had no result. Caesar turned in another direction. In the autumn of the same year, he made a descent with two legions upon the coast of Britain. Having beaten the natives of the Kentish territory in some slight encounters, but suffered at the same time much injury to his vessels from tides and storms, he withdrew hastily into winter quarters in Gaul. In no way discouraged, however, he again attacked the Britons in the succeeding summer, and after beating down the opposing forces, effected the passage of the Thames at a ford above London there is reason to believe that he penetrated into the interior as far as Verulamium in Hertfordshire. An important discovery of coins of Julius Caesar seems to indicate that a detachment at least of his forces was for a moment advanced some miles to the north of that spot. 
but he did not care to effect a permanent lodgment in our island, which would have weakened his position in Gaul. He was content to retire with the promise of a slender tribute, and this was probably never paid after his departure. He had occupied his troops, he had amused the people at Rome, who listened with delight to their hero's dispatches, and he had allowed affairs at home to ripen for the crisis to which, through his partisans, he was gradually urging them. During the progress of his campaigns, the proconsul's vigilance had indeed never been entirely diverted from the march of events in the city. After each season of military operations, he had repaired to the baths of Lucca, at the southern limit of his province, for the laws forbade an imperator to enter Italy while retaining his command, and there had concerted with the friends who flocked to him from Rome the measures most conducive to their common interests. During his absence the bands of the triumvirate had become relaxed. Pompeius and Crassus, always cold to one another, were pursuing their own private objects, each hastening, as he thought, to the attainment of supreme power. Cicero had attached himself to Pompeius, and the scarcity of corn occurring, he moved that an extraordinary commission should be assigned to his patron for supplying the necessities of the capital. The Republic had now become familiar with these monopolies of power. The consuls assented, and for the third time Pompeius was placed above the laws. He was authorized to demand supplies from any part of the empire, and to fix the prices at his own discretion. The officers to be employed and enriched by the employment were to be appointed by himself. His powers were to be continued for five years. Cicero himself accepted a place on the commission. The whole scheme was a mere pretense for putting the great captain at the helm of state, which four years before he had unwarily abandoned. But Pompeius, from carelessness or incapacity, failed to gain any accession of strength from the powers thus thrust upon him. With ample means of encouraging his friends and purchasing his enemies, he found himself more than ever exposed to the intrigues of the nobles and the violence of the mob. He was defeated in suing for a further appointment which now offered itself as a prize for contending factions. The Republic seems to have postponed the acceptance of the king of Egypt's legacy. The story of this legacy is indeed obscure and doubtful. The reigning sovereign, Ptolemaeus Auletes, had at this juncture been expelled by his subjects, and the Senate proposed to restore him. The public man to whom this business should be committed would require the command of an army, and doubtless would reap for himself fame, power, and emolument. The government desired to send one of their own party. The consular Lentulus and some tribunes in the interest of Pompeius interposed, alleging an oracle of the Sibyl to the effect that the king must not be restored with a multitude, a phrase which was deemed to preclude the use of an armed force. Lentulus was baffled. The appointment, army and all, was still open. But when Pompeius, through his creatures, demanded it for himself, he could succeed no better. The turbulence of the popular demagogues rendered any decision impossible. The city became once more a prey to internal tumults. 
the nobles threw themselves again on the support of their licentious champion milo at such critical moments omens are never wanting to stir the popular feeling the statue of jupiter on the alban mount was struck with lightning an event which caused general consternation as a presage of impending calamity clodius seems to have sown dissension between pompeius and crassus at the same time the senate was emboldened to talk of recalling caesar from his province and exposing him unarmed to impeachment and exile or even death toward the close of the year 698 bc 56 the proconsul had repaired as in the previous winter to his station at lucca and thither consulars and officials of all ranks flocked from the city to meet him a hundred and twenty lictors might be counted at his door while two hundred senators nearly one half of the whole order paid their court at his receptions all these magnates returned to rome charmed with his affable manners and his full-handed generosity all were rapidly coming to the conclusion that the reign of equal law was approaching its end to be succeeded by the ascendancy of a popular hero the fatal crisis had indeed almost arrived the machinery of the free state could perform its functions no longer the consuls and tribunes the senate and the people mutually checked each other's movements and paralyzed the action of the body politic the elections for the ensuing year were impeded the consuls interposing under pretense of adverse auspices and forbidding the tribes to assemble meanwhile they abstained in person from all the duties of their office clad themselves in mourning refrained from the spectacles and the solemn festival on the alban mount as men under constraint of the mob and deprived of their legitimate power when at last the consul's chairs became vacant no successors had been duly appointed the year 699 bc 55 opened with an interregnum while riot reigned at home there could be little check upon license abroad gabinius as proconsul of syria took upon himself to set ptolemaeus on his throne at alexandria in defiance of the recent veto of the senate meanwhile the impatient candidates disregarding the legal forms of an interregnum induced the tribunes to convene the people irregularly while the nobles employed bribery for their nominee domitius the younger crassus arrived from gaul with a detachment of caesar's veterans and overbore all opposition the new consuls pompeius and crassus having thus obtained their appointment by violence secured the other offices for their friends by similar outrage cato who had returned from his mission to cyprus without stain of pecuniary corruption now sued for the praetorship but was mortified by a rejection which was rendered doubly vexatious by the infamy of vitinius whom the triumvirs exalted over his head caesar had induced his colleagues to smother their mutual jealousy he next secured for them by the intervention of the tribune trebonius the important provinces of spain and syria on their descent from office in return he obtained in b c fifty four through their assistance the extension of his own command for a second period of five years they could urge that the regions which he had so quickly conquered were but half pacified 
and as yet imperfectly organized. Caesar himself looked forward to confirming his influence over his legions, while he anticipated the decline of his rival's power in the interval. The resistance of the nobles to a measure which proved so fatal to them was petulant rather than determined. Cato, who had lost much of his authority by daily collision with violence and vulgarity, and Favonius, a party brawler rather than a political leader, were the most active champions of a faction from which Lucullus, Servilius, and Lentulus now held themselves aloof. The tribunes on different sides engaged in the petty warfare of obstructing public ways and locking the doors of civic buildings. Cato got himself lifted on men's shoulders in order to force his way into the place of meeting, and employed the stale trick of declaring the auspices adverse. He was answered by the brandishing of clubs and showers of stones, swords and daggers were drawn in the affray, and the friends of the optimates were driven from the arena not without bloodshed. Such were the tumultuous proceedings by which the desperate policy of the triumvirs was ratified. It was in one of these scenes of violence that the robe of Pompeius became sprinkled with blood. On his return home thus disfigured, he was met by his youthful consort Julia, who was alarmed for his safety. Horrified at the sight, she was seized with premature labor and died from its effects shortly afterwards. Pompeius, notwithstanding his coldness in public affairs, was a man of strong domestic sensibility. The loss of his young wife affected him deeply, and made him perhaps more than ever supine and sluggish in the prosecution of his interests. He might otherwise have turned to good account an event which cut through the entanglements of his personal connection with his rival. The supereminent position he now enjoyed as the head of an important commission, and the chief of a large army which he could command from beneath the walls of Rome, gave him an immense advantage over Caesar, who was engaged at a great distance in a long and still precarious warfare, and over Crassus also, who at the same moment was rushing blindly upon an arduous expedition. Caesar had conquered the Gauls and could pretend that he had received their submission, but the Belgic tribes were again in arms, and his enemies at home might anticipate at any moment his defeat or death. Crassus, in undertaking the government of Syria, had announced his intention of making war upon the Parthians, and he, too, now advanced in years and long disused to arms, might soon succumb to a formidable foe in a difficult country. The nobles, indeed, who had little fear of him at home, were jealous of his possible success abroad, and induced one of the tribunes to denounce his enterprise as a national crime and stir up the superstitious feelings of the people against it. But Crassus was not deterred, by the direful omens which were said to attend his exit from the city. On arriving at the seat of his government, he directed the advance of troops to the Euphrates. He entered the region of Asruini, captured some towns and placed in them Roman garrisons, before he returned to his headquarters for the winter. When the Parthian government complained of this unprovoked aggression upon their dependency, the proconsul replied that he would give them an answer in their capital, Seleucia. As soon as he had completed his preparations, 
he led a force of several legions across the desolate and arid district between the Euphrates and the Tigris. The Parthians had determined to let him advance to a certain distance unopposed. They had directed an officer of their own to offer his services as a guide and lead him into the ambush which they had prepared for him. The Roman troops had become exhausted and demoralized under a chief in whom they had no confidence. When they turned back disheartened, the Parthians closed around them with their clouds of light cavalry and inflicted upon them disastrous losses. At last the Romans sustained a crushing defeat under the walls of Carai, B.C. 53. The son of Crassus, a gallant young officer from Caesar's army, was slain, and the proconsul, stricken with grief and shame, deemed it more prudent to negotiate than to hazard a rapid flight. The Parthians deceived and entrapped him, and Crassus himself was slain in a futile attempt at rescue. The main body of his army was captured and carried away into the interior. A small remnant only was saved by the prompt vigor of Gaius Cassius Longinus, and led back within the frontiers of Syria. The overthrow of Carai was one of the gravest disasters ever sustained by the Roman arms. It is said that twenty thousand were slain and ten thousand carried into captivity. The officers were treated with scorn and mockery. The head of Crassus was cut off, and molten gold, according to the story, was poured into the mouth of the most avaricious of the Romans. But the captives seemed to have been treated with indulgence and allowed to settle in the land of their conquerors. The mass of the citizens at home appear to have regarded this discomfiture with comparative indifference. So little was Crassus loved or respected among them, so distant was the scene of operations. It was not till a later period and under other political circumstances that so signal a defeat was deemed to demand an equally signal reparation. Doubtless the eyes of nobles and people became more intently fixed on the position of the proconsul of Gaul, which was becoming more and more hazardous. On his return from his second expedition into Britain, Caesar had found Gaul tranquil and apparently resigned to the yoke. He held a meeting of the states at Samorobriva, Amiens, his northern capital, and assured himself of their fidelity. He had intended to spend the winter at Lucca, but meanwhile the tribes between the Loire and the Rhine had concerted a wide conspiracy, and only waited for the proconsul's departure to rise in arms. Their revolt was accidentally precipitated, and Caesar was still at hand, but cooped up in his own quarters, he remained for some time ignorant of the imminent danger to which his outlying detachments were exposed. Quintus Cicero, the orator's brother, was at the head of one of these, and could with difficulty notify his peril to his chief by a billet inscribed with Greek characters shot into his camp. The vigor and genius of Caesar now prevailed. He restored tranquillity among the great mass of the insurgent peoples. He made a signal example of the Eberones, a tribe of Cimbric origin, whom he delivered over as aliens to the blind hostility of the Gauls around them, and with the defeat of the warlike Treveri, he seemed to have accomplished a second and final pacification of the province. But his peril had been great, his conquests were evidently incomplete his position was precarious. 
both his friends and enemies at rome might equally doubt whether he would survive the prolongation of his foreign adventure End of section 10.